morning. It's good to see you this morning and good to be in God's Word together. Uh, I really appreciate Dennis and Jenny Duncan. I don't know if you, if you know them, but they always bring the energy. And uh, Dennis is, if you know Pastor Avon, who's our pastoral care pastor on staff at Mount Hope, some of you have met him or he's called you. Uh, he, he's been here before, been one of our elders for years. Dennis is Avon's brother. Uh, and Dennis and Jenny were pastors here in the Boston area for many years. So there is a, there's a close connection there between Mount Hope and the Duncans. And so it is wonderful, wonderful to have uh, them both back for a little bit and sharing with us. And if you're going to, some of you, there's a, a lunch this afternoon at our Burlington location. Uh, we asked you to sign up last week if you were going, an all-nations lunch. And of course, the Duncans will be there as well if you're going up there. Uh, appreciate Andrew and, uh, and Rosemary. Uh, I, uh, many of you know that they very unexpectedly lost a very important family member uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and so they're back. Uh, Rosemary's grandfather, who in many ways was, was like a father figure uh, to her and to Andrew uh, for many years, passed away very suddenly. Uh, and so it's wonderful to have them back with us and have Andrew uh, here ministering, and, uh, and so we'll continue to pray for them. You know, I don't know uh, about you, but for me, one of the things that can create a real sense of anxiety in life, one of the things that can create a real sense of worry or uncertainty is not being confident in where I'm headed. When I'm confident where I'm going, I know where I'm going, I know why I'm going there, not a lot of anxiety in life, but when I'm heading somewhere or going in a direction or living in a certain way, and I'm not quite sure how it's going to end up or exactly where I'm going or why I'm headed there, uh, for instance, it can create a sense of anxiety. And I was thinking, I moved to this area 20 years ago this month, all right? It's kind of, I don't know that's a, that's a big milestone or not, but personally it is. So 20 years ago, my dad and I were in this Penske truck drove from Nebraska uh, to Gordon-Conwell, where he dropped me off, and, uh, and I've been here ever since. When I first arrived, I don't know if any of you remember this. Some of you might remember it. Some of you, I'm going to talk about a world you've never seen or imagined before. But when I first arrived, one of the hardest things for me, which still is one of the hardest things for people, was driving and figuring out where I was going. I remember I missed a turn when I first moved here, and I was living on the North Shore, and I said to myself, I'll just go around the block because everywhere I've lived for my entire life, that's what you do. You just go around the block. And I, and I tried to go around the block. And the next thing I knew, I saw like a welcome to Bar Harbor sign or something like that. And, and I was way out of where I wanted to be. Driving and figuring out where I was going and how I was going to get there was a difficult thing, especially because I didn't have GPS. And I don't know if anyone remembers this, but I used to have to go to this website. It was called mapquest.com. And then I would print out directions. And then I would fold the directions in half. And I would put them in the middle of my steering wheel. And I know that we talk about, you know, the dangers of texting and driving. And those are real. But the dangers of MapQuest directions in the middle of the steering wheel were also something back in the day. And I would drive and it would say something really helpful. Like uh, when you arrive at the intersection where nine streets cross in no direction for no reason around Boston, make sure you stay on Pond Street and then in 200 feet, turn left to stay on Pond Street, something like that. And I would look, and of course there were no street signs because as Pastor Rick, our senior pastor, who is a native uh, New Englander, has told me many times, uh, we believe 
that if you don't know the name of the street that you're on, you shouldn't be there. That's what New Englanders believe. And so there was no street signs, and, uh, and it just creates a sense of anxiety, doesn't it? It does. You ever been in the, in the car and you're trying to get your cell phone to get service so you can type in your directions so you can figure out where you're going to go? If you don't know where you're going and don't know where you're headed, it, it creates anxiety. It's hard, isn't it? And I think uh, I see that in many areas in life. Not just driving. GPS has helped us. Now I just follow the purple line. I feel much better. But I'll, I'll be real with you. Even walking into the service this morning, I had multiple people just as we're talking say, I need you to pray for this because it's creating a sense of anxiety. For some people, it's loss, and you're not sure how you're going to move forward. For some people, it's financial issues. You're not sure how you're going to pay for things. For some people that are sitting right in this room, it's health issues. There's appointments this week, and you're not sure how they're going to go one way or the other. And there's all of these things sitting in the room right now. For some of you, it's relationships. It's, you're not sure exactly where your marriage is headed or why it's heading in that direction. You're not sure what school you're going to go to. You're not sure if you're supposed to move or change jobs or stay. And all of that sense of you're not exactly sure exactly where you're supposed to go creates a sense of uncertainty and anxiety inside of all of us. And it doesn't just happen with things that, like I'm talking about now. It also happens in matters of faith, doesn't it? I remember a couple of years ago having a conversation with a, with a close friend who's not a believer. And, and she said something like, so, in fact, we had just attended a church service, and, and she's a, her husband and, and her are great friends of Lori's and mine, and we had all gone together, the four of us. And then afterwards, she was talking to me, and she said, uh, you know, I don't get it. I don't get how everyone is so confident that they're right in this church service. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know for sure that, that what you're saying and what's being said and what you're reading in the Bible, how do you know for sure that it's, that it's true? That you're right and that other people are wrong. You think about hearing Jenny stand up on stage and, and talk about taking the gospel to a country that is, that is 99.8% uh, Muslim. And uh, people would come and they would ask, how do you know you're doing the right thing? That's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Because I know uh, plenty of arguments towards the, re the truth of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, philosophical arguments, apologetic arguments. But at the end of the day, I know it's true because I've experienced the power of Jesus Christ in my life. That's how I know it's true. That's a hard thing to communicate. 
And sometimes it can feel like it's been a while since you've experienced that power. And so the question comes in, how do you know? It's a serious question. Because the gospel is that you would bet your entire life on the fact that this is true. That you would rearrange everything that you are and everything that you have and all of your energy and time and resources would go into living like this is true. And that's a big thing to do if you're not 100% confident that what you're doing is right. And that question pops up in your head, doesn't it? Pops up in my head. I hope I'm not the only one in the room. Like, how do you know you're headed in the right direction? How do you know that you're, you're going where you should? And that can certainly create a sense of spiritual anxiety inside of all of us. We've been in this letter of 1 John, this short little letter, uh, two and a half pages in, in my Bible, and yet we've, we've been able to take some time and walk through why John is writing this letter. And one of the things that we've said over the weeks is that John, this is John who was the disciple of Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who writes the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, who writes the Gospel of John, one of the four books of the Bible that talk about Jesus' ministry. Uh, John, one of the things that we walk through his letter, and one of the things that we've said is he's saying to people almost, I want you to know the things that I've heard so that you have some sort of covering as you walk through all the challenges and storms in this life. And one of the things that I really appreciate about John is not just in this letter, but in other books that John writes as well, he's very explicit as to why he is writing. Why he's writing. And the reason why John writes this letter, and it's important to understand, if you want to know what John is writing about and why he's writing about it, you need to know why he's even putting the letter together in the first place. And if I had to summarize exactly why John is writing, I would summarize it this way. John writes this particular letter so that you who believe in Jesus, he's writing to believers. And some of you may not call yourself believers here this morning. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you get a chance to listen into this. But John writes his letters to believers so that you can live the confidence, live with confidence that comes from knowing where you're going. John says to the people, I want you to be able to live with the confidence that comes from knowing where you're going. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know where you're headed. And I want you to be able to put into practice that confidence. Here's how he puts it. It's in 1 John chapter 5, and we're just looking at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's entire purpose in writing this letter that we've been talking about now for weeks is so that those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus might know exactly where you're going. And the truth is that when this world is over or when Jesus returns, 
that you will not only see him face to face in that moment, but you will spend an eternity either with him or apart from him. And John says, I want you to be able to live with the confidence. If you trust in Jesus, if you believe in him, I want you to have absolute confidence that you know where you're going and that you know that you have eternal life. This word know is important for John. He uses it over and over and over again. And John's saying to the believers, if there's one thing I want you to know, it's this. doesn't matter what you're facing today. I mean, it's a problem. It's real. It matters if you're feeling well. It matters if you have resources to cover your bills. That matters, of course, but there's going to be a day that it doesn't matter, John is saying. You face all of these things, John's saying, with the knowledge that you have eternal life with Christ. I remember one time I was, I was a, a camper at a Christian camp growing up. And my counselor, he loved to play the guitar. And somebody was moving his guitar and it got cracked. And I don't know, I don't remember, but I think it was a pretty nice one. He was a pretty good guitar player. He led all the worship at the camp, and it got cracked. And, he, and I remember he took a look at it. I was probably in middle school. He took a look at it, and he said, ah, it'll burn. And I said, I, I don't know if I said it or someone else said, what do you mean it'll burn? Like, why aren't you more upset? He's like, you know what? It'll burn is the statement that I say when I need to remember that one day God is going to get rid of this earth and he's going to create a new one that is perfect. And this guitar and everything else that's in this world is going to fall away and a new world is going to be created. And he said, I would be very angry about that guitar, except for I just need to remember that it's, it's, it'll burn. It's just a thing. And John's saying, I want to write these things to you, early Christians, persecuted Christians. I want to write these things to you, people of Belmont, Massachusetts, people attending church at Mount Hope. I'm writing these things to you because no matter what problems you're facing with your children or what problems you're facing in your marriage or what problems you're facing internally as you deal with loneliness and depression and you're looking for a place to live and you're dealing with health issues and you're walking through all of these things, the pain and the loss and work problems and school problems, I I want you to know that you face those things knowing where you're headed. You have eternal life. And what does John mean by these things? He says, I write these things. There's an author, pastor, theologian, John Stott, who in his commentary summarizes John's method in this letter in this way. And I found it really helpful. This is what John has been doing for us throughout this, leading up to this final statement at the end of the book. Do you remember at the very beginning, chapter one, John says, I'm writing to you the things that I've heard. I want you to hear what I heard when I was walking with Jesus. You have not walked with Jesus. I walked with him for three years. I heard and saw a lot of things. I'm telling you what I heard and saw so that you can hear it. And once you hear it, I want you to believe 
In fact, if you looked at John's gospel in chapter 20 of John's gospel, that's exactly why he writes his gospel as well. I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then he says in this book, and that by believing you may live. Not that by what, not by what you do, you might be saved, but because you are saved, that you might go and live the life that God calls you to live and empowers you to live through his Holy Spirit. And then by living, you may know. We heard that wonder te wonderful testimony of the Turkish man standing there waiting to be baptized. How did he know he was saved? Because he heard and he believed and his life changed. He didn't change his life so that he might be saved. He heard and he believed and he lived and that's how he knows. And same thing for you. It's the same testimony for every single Christian that's walked the face of the earth. Some of us have, have what seem like very plain testimonies. I grew up in church. My parents drug me to church. I realized it was real at like 16. That's my testimony. Some of us have dramatic testimonies, right? I was broken and lost and living on the streets and God saved me and radically changed my life. But the story is absolutely the same. I love the way that it's summarized in the book of Job. If you're not familiar with Job, Job has a number of friends that talk to him in the midst of pain. And one of them is named Elihu, and he says this. He says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has rescued me from going down into the pit and I will live to enjoy the light. I don't care who you are, that's your testimony. I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. Through Christ, I would add, living under the new covenant, God has rescued me from going down to the pit, and I will live to enjoy the light. That's the path that John's giving us here. And when you know where you're headed, you can live with confidence. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that you and I live in a sinful, broken world. And I got to tell you, if I was the enemy, the one thing I would do is try to use the reality of a sinful, broken world to shake your confidence in who Jesus is. All of those things that you know, because you heard and you believed and your life changed. And so you know that God is who he says he is. If I was the enemy, I would try to use all of the things in this world, the things that go wrong, the unexpected expenses, the unexpected losses, the unexpected job changes, the relationship problems. I would use all of that stuff to try to shake your confidence in what you know to be true about God. And that's exactly what happens. And for the people here in this church, and we've talked about this, it's happening through false teachers. Uh, false teachers are coming in and, and they're saying, you know this gospel that, that John said to you? I mean, the gospel is very simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. 
Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Simple. That's the gospel. It's by faith that you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of your works. That's the gospel. It's very simple. But there is an enemy that would come and would want to exploit or, or make you question the simplicity of what is true. And in this church, and with these early believers that John's writing to, he's doing it through false teachers, and he still does it this way today. And these false teachers were coming in, and they were saying, that simple gospel that John gave you, that, that, that stuff that, that Andrew read earlier from the gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, these false teachers are coming in and saying, you know, Jesus was fully divine. This is what uh, is being said in this early church, but he wasn't fully human. Well, the problem with that is if he's not fully human, then he cannot fully take our sins and have them on him as he dies on the cross. That's the problem with that. And so these false teachers are coming. And I think false teachers in general fall into two categories. There are rebellious false teachers and there are religious false teachers. And both of them add something to the gospel. Or, or they take something away from the gospel. Rebellious false teachers tend to take something away from the gospel. And they're all over the place. I promise you, you pull up Facebook right now, you will find them. And they will come. And they will try to take something away that God has said. It's the enemy's oldest trick in the book. He does it right at the beginning. God says to Adam and Eve, built this beautiful garden. We can live in perfect harmony and perfect relationship. Do whatever you want. Just don't eat of this one tree. And the rebellious false teacher the serpent, the enemy, comes and says, did God really say that you couldn't do that? I mean, does that even make sense? Did God really say that you couldn't eat from that tree? Come on. He just doesn't want you to enjoy it. And rebellious false teachers come today, and they say things like, how can you trust such an ancient book? And they say things like, it's 2023, which I don't even know what that argument means. Because history does not literally move in a good direction all the time. Sometimes history moves in a terrible direction. So you can't just say, because time is passing, we're getting better and better. It's 2023. How could you possibly ascribe to this moral these moral categories in 2023. And a rebellious false teacher will cause you to question. They will come and they say, does God really say? Does that even make sense? But there are religious false teachers as well. And religious false teachers will come and they will add to the gospel. 
they will say, yeah, 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 I know, I know, you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and got raised from the dead, justified, saved. But you're not really a follower of Jesus unless you also do, unless you also listen to, unless you're also engaged in, unless you also join. And these voices are everywhere. And they may give you a sense that your Christianity is not good enough, that your following of Christ is not sufficient, that you need to add something with your works and with your, with your actions that would somehow help bolster up your salvation that can only come through Christ alone. What John is talking about here is the sense then of anxiety that could, could come out of, that does come out of that. For so many Christians, we live with this worry as to whether or not we're really a part of the family. I mean, whether we're really in. I've had so many people over the years say to me, but my life is hard right now, and I'm just trying to figure out what I did wrong. I'm trying to figure out where I didn't follow God enough. That's a, it's a rebellious voice or it's a religious voice telling you you haven't asked correctly, you haven't done enough stuff. John comes in and says, no, no, no. Listen, this is what I heard. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And God is love and he has saved you through Jesus Christ. And you don't have to add anything to that and definitely don't take anything away from it. But if you believe that, then live in the confidence that you have eternal life. That's John's message to the church in the midst of all of these voices. But when you start questioning whether or not you're part of the family and you're questioning whether or not you're getting the benefits, that's a tough place to be. And I don't know if you've been following over the last week the, the saga that's going on with, with the former football player, Michael Orr. And many of you may have seen the Blindside movie when it came out a number of years ago, or you read the book Blindside. But the whole story is supposed to be this uplifting story of this family uh, who, who adopted this, this young man who went on to be uh, an, a standout college football player and then an NFL player. And the, the book and the movie are this heartwarming story of how they brought this young man into their family and then he went on to achieve such great things. But now, very publicly, Michael Orr is claiming that he was never actually adopted into this family. That they had him sign uh, conservatorship papers. I can never say that word. But that's different than adoption. And because of that, he has not received the benefits of being a part of the family. Now, I don't know legally who's in the right in this case. But what I do know is this idea that he is questioning whether or not he's actually a part of the family and other people are now questioning whether or not he was actually a part of the family is now leading to him wondering whether or not he was able to fully engage in the benefits of being a part of the family. And if I'm the enemy, I would love to come into your mind and to your heart in the midst of a sinful, broken world and say, I don't know if you're really a part of this family. 
and whether or not you're receiving the benefits of being a part of the family. And John comes in and with his letter to 1 John and saying to you, I'm writing these things so that you might have confidence that you have eternal life. That you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are adopted sons and daughters in his family. And that you are co-heirs with Christ. And you will receive all of the benefits that come with being a part of the family. And John says, how do you maintain this confidence? We could look a number of places in this letter to talk about what it looks like to maintain this confidence. But I'm going to look back at chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 quickly as we close. Because John says this. Confidence in Christ will come as you spend time with him. I've told you what I've heard and seen so that you might believe, so that you might... Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live. And by living, you may know that Jesus is who he says he is and that you have eternal life, that you are saved. But he said, you're going to need to be reminded. And he says this multiple times in his letter. You're going to need to be reminded. And he says it this way in, in chapter two. He says, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shriek from, shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is so important. A couple of things I want to point out here quickly. John calls the church, my little children. These are John's spiritual family. And the last thing John wanted them to do was to have to walk around fighting these false teachers, wondering whether or not they had salvation in and through Jesus Christ. So he says, listen, spend time with him so that you can live every moment of your day in confidence that if he shows up, you're ready. And you won't have to shrink away. You know who had to shrink away? Adam, back in the garden. Because Eve did partake of that fruit, and so did Adam. God showed up, and Adam went hiding. You remember? And when God finds him and asks him what he's done, he very courageously blames his wife. The woman you gave me made me eat of this fruit. He shrinks, shrinks away because he has no confidence. John says, spend time with Jesus. One of the ways I hear that abide in him is make sure that Jesus is the loudest voice in your life. And in a world filled with voices, we have to be more intentional about this than ever. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John says, look at your life. You cannot practice righteousness 
without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can try to be a moral person. But if you're truly from the inside out, just like in that testimony we heard earlier, if you're truly from the inside out going to be changed, so you're not just doing things because they're morally right, but you're doing them because Christ has transformed your mind and your heart and the power of the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And so you are compelled by that to live in newness of life and new righteousness. If you see that happening in your life, if you can look back six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and you can say, I'm not perfect and I still struggle with sin, but look at how God has been at work at me. Look how he's been changing me. John says, you know, you're practicing righteousness within the power of the Holy Spirit. John throughout this letter goes back and forth and he says, if you're a Christian, you're going to struggle with sin. He says that right at the beginning, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth does not live in you. That's what he says right away. Of course, you're going to have struggles with sin. But the question for John is, which one are you practicing? Are you following the rebellious false teachers that say, yeah, just keep going. That's all right. You got grace. You say by grace, just do what you want to do. God understands. Are you following the religious false teachers? Who would say, you better start doing good things and you better do them over and over and over again because otherwise you're a bad person and God's not going to love you? Or are you following the gospel? John says, hearing what is true and believing it in your heart and in your mind so that the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you to practice righteousness. That's the litmus test. We talked about this last week. That's the litmus test so that you can be confident that you know you are saved. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up as we start to close this morning. If I can give you an opinion this morning, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here last Sunday, I told you that my family, we spent a week away at a Christian camp and our, our speaker was Garrett Kell, a pastor from the DC area. And he said something in one of the services that resonated with me and that I absolutely agree with. One of the biggest challenges facing our churches, I mean in Western American context, One of the biggest challenges facing our families is that we who call ourselves believers abide in things other than Christ. John says, if you want to have confidence for when he comes back, you abide in him. One of the biggest challenges that we face is that we abide in things other than Christ. Meaning, I told you earlier that when I hear that phrase abide, for me, it's helpful to think Jesus should be the loudest voice in my life. I should be spending more time with him than I do other people. And John heard Jesus say this in John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. Jesus say, abide in me and you'll produce fruit. Spend time with me. Hear the things I'm saying and believe them. But for so many of us that call ourselves Christian, especially in our context, other voices are louder in our lives 
than the voice of Christ. We abide in social media far more than we abide in Christ. We abide in the 24-hour news cycle far more than we abide in Christ. We abide in what other people say about Jesus more than we abide in just getting in his presence and listening to what Jesus says to us. And the result of that is a lack of confidence. A lack of confidence in who God is. A lack of confidence that Jesus is enough. A lack of confidence that we're doing enough. That we're being enough. And for many of us, the most powerful thing we could do is shut all of that stuff off. And invest it here. Make the words of Christ the loudest voice so that when I hear those voices, I'm hearing those voices through the lens of Scripture rather than reading my Bible through the lens of those voices. John said to the church, children, I want you to be able to have confidence in Christ's coming. So you don't have to shrink back. In fact, I'm writing all of these things so that you might know in the midst of a fallen and broken world that you have eternal life. So abide in him. As your pastor, I don't want you to live with the anxiety that comes from not knowing Christ. I don't want you to live with the burden that comes with feeling like you have to, on your own, be good enough to impress God so he lets you into heaven. I want you to live in confidence that you are part of the family and that you receive its benefits. And how do you do that? You need to hear the words of Jesus. Believe that they are true. Allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to go and live so that you might know. God, I thank you for your presence here with us this morning. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in the room this morning that are wondering where we go, where we're supposed to be, and we're not sure how we're going to get there. We're not sure how the money's going to come. We're not sure what the diagnosis is going to be. We're not sure exactly how the relationship is going to prepare, repair itself. And all of those things are creating a sense of anxiety and a lack of confidence in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, I pray that this morning would be a morning where we remain confident in this. That you are exactly who you say you are that your word is true and still speaks. That Christ has come. He has taken the punishment of our sins on the cross. He has risen from the dead, proving that he has power and authority over sin and death. And as we believe, we can live confidently today that we will have eternity with you. Holy Spirit, remind us of that truth in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.
And we're going to close this morning in this song declaring what we know is true. And so if you believe these words are true, I invite you to stand and let's worship our God together.